The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 13th of June. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. The government is drawing up plans for next year's budget from the very comfortable position of running a surplus this year. A surplus like never before. As you know, our limitations at the moment are not the public finances. We have the money. It is the risk of fueling inflation. And we need to be conscious of that risk. We also have a responsibility to take decisive action on behalf of our citizens. And I believe an overly cautious approach could push more people into poverty or into financial distress. As the Taoiseach says, the government has the money, an awful lot of money. A general government surplus of €10 billion, or 3.5% of national income, uh, we believe is now in prospect for the current year. And this is welcome news. But if we look beyond the headline figures... We can see real vulnerabilities below the surface and we cannot ignore these. Now, it's those vulnerabilities coupled with how all of the extra money stuffing the coffers of the Exchequer is temporary, coming from windfall corporation taxes, that has led the Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, to say that this year, despite the €10 billion surplus, he needs to be prudent. I know that we will hear a lot today about choices and trade-offs, whether we should save or spend the surplus, increase public spending or decrease taxes. But I don't see these as trade-offs. You can actually do all of these things if you have a growing economy. In fact, it's what we've been doing for years now. Just look at the facts. The Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, is at odds with his money men, at least to some degree, and says we are so flush right now that the government can practically do whatever it chooses to do. We can increase public spending, reduce income taxes, reduce our national debt and set up a savings fund while we have economic growth. The real choice is A, the quantum, and B, the split, not the either ours. But what about the risks? There will always be risks on the horizon, and it is the job of government to manage those risks. Right now, Leo Bradker argues that the economy is robust enough to endure all of those risks. So if government takes an overly cautious approach in dealing with the cost of living crisis or the climate crisis, it is making a conscious decision to reduce living standards and to do less. And that's not something I think that we should stand over given our fiscal position. That's the Taoiseach Leo Vradker speaking yesterday in Dublin Castle at uh, the National Economic Dialogue. We also heard from the Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, who had a somewhat more conservative stance on what to do going into Budget 24. Let's talk about this now with uh, the Labour Party's spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Loud and East Meath. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the room. It's unbelievable the amount of money that they're government has uh, in its hand, unexpectedly if you like, this windfall 10 billion euro and the quandary of what to do with it. I think the first question has to be, can the government spend money? Uh, Because it has all of this money to spend. Uh, We hear uh, what might be done with it, but we also heard yesterday that in the first three months of this year, the government has 80 million euro that was scheduled to be spent on housing it's unspent, and £100 underspent in transport. That's pretty staggering, and I don't know if uh, people would be surprised to learn that. Um, 
I, I, I think they will because people can see and they read and hear every day on the news <clears throat> the huge levels of um, tax sloshing around the exchequer at the moment, but they feel quite rightly that their lives haven't improved. Um, so there's a capacity problem. Um, we don't have the people to deliver the services that uh, we should expect in a wealthy republic. Uh, Eamon Ryan himself has said, for example, yesterday that we probably need about 30,000 additional civil and public servants just to stand still. Mm. Uh, our National Development Plan um, was published in 2021. That's an investment of about €135 billion Euro over a 10-year period up to 2030, which would mm. build schools, the hospitals, um, the house, public housing and so on that we need, um, but we actually now need to spend about an additional 19 billion euro between well, now and 30, 2030 because yeah. of, of construction mm. inflation. Yeah. So mm. there's no shortage mm. on Is that why we're not spending of, this money? Uh, I mean, I think that was what we heard when we were told there was a billion euro underspend on housing over three years. First three months of this year, 100 million underspend. Uh, is it the same reason that it's too expensive or it's not value for money? I, I, I think it's probably all of those reasons and I'm, I'm, I'm just Government can speak for themselves, but I'm 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 just kind of concluding or summarising on, on on what the position might be. We have about half the number of construction workers that we had uh, during the so-called boom period in, in the two thousands, and there's lots of different reasons why people won't go into construction. And that's because of the boom and bust yeah. experience. Well, uh, so many of them left after the last boom. Yeah. Yeah. And you might ask mm-hmm. after the last boom, why would somebody in a very uncertain situation uh, come make some money, you know, over a period of years and then have no job mm-hmm. uh, at all? Uh, for a period because of the boom and bust history that we we have had. That's why, for example, we in Labour have been talking, for example, with our trade union colleagues about the idea of setting up a national housing corporation. Uh, as Owen Reedy described this morning, the head of Congress, uh, an ESB for housing, mm. uh, to moderate the housing market, uh, to make sure that the state can actually step in when there's a supply problem and actually build the homes that mm. we need. The state because building company. The state yeah. building company, mm. because mm. the problem mm. that we have at the moment is that everything's left up to the market. Uh, and in times of a downturn, mm. we don't have the resources then to actually invest in housing. But you still have the same problem, do you not, regardless of how you go about it, that you don't have the manpower because if uh, the people aren't in the country, you're going to have to get people to come to the country who have the skills to build the houses. And but then the next question is, where will they live? And that's exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a catch-22 situation. Mm. But actually, you go to the heart of the problem there. I mean, that's that, that the reason why we talk about a state housing company is for this reason. That would imply that people would be employed full-time, for example, by a state housing company, that apprentices would be taken on I won't share with you, Michael, the small number of wet trade apprentices that the state has taken on over the last year. It's embarrassing, absolutely embarrassing. Yet we say we've an ambition to build 33,000 homes a year. Actually, Liv Rocker yesterday revised that to 40,000, and let's see what happens now in the budget to, to meet that expectation. We'd say 50, but um, you know that, that that's, that's our own perspective, and that's the ESRI perspective um, as well. So a state housing company would actually bring some mm. certainty to market. It would mean people with full-time jobs working in the construction sector mm. for the state on civil and public ser- service uh, wa- wage scales, mm. uh, taking on the apprentices that we need, training them up to... Um, high standard and I think that would make a huge difference in terms of this boom and bust and this mm. cycle that we've always had mm. in this country building too many and homes would sometimes you, in areas would, would you spend this money that's coming in on a temporary basis to build these houses and how much if yes um, we would build a portion of it and actually I'm, I'm glad you asked me that question about the, the, the surplus because a lot of debate at the moment about what should be done with the windfall receipts that we are set to receive about 65 billion potentially over the next three years and of course you shouldn't be spending money um, that is not recurrent um, on current expenditure but there are actually opportunities to actually 
do transformational things in our economy by investing in capital. For example, we probably need... For example, we, we need our hospitals extended in this area. We actually probably need a brand new hospital mm. somewhere in Leinster. We need to extend the hospitals well, in Dublin as we well. We were told we needed one of them in 2008. That's right, yeah. We probably need about mm. five, four to 5,000 hospital beds over the next mm. 10 years. Um, what we need as well is obviously housing is well docu- documented what we need in that regard but I do actually agree as well that some of the excess receipts should be put into a new um, sovereign wealth fund that could be invested into the future so we have the money to mm. invest in times when there's a downturn because mm. we know from the last crash and the experience of recovering from that the first thing to be hit is capital investment mm. and we're actually playing catch up uh, It looks like Michael McGrath is going to do exactly that he, he did but only say a portion of it yeah, yeah, but he say. did say that he was talking about establishing a, a long term investment vehicle uh, in his piece so that looks like it's on the cards anyway. I think the principle that's a good mm-hmm. thing to do mm-hmm. um, because for, for, for a start if you spend all the 65 billion euro just inflationary it just inflates the economy mm-hmm. things become even more expensive but you use a portion of that I think in a national infrastructure development mm-hmm. fund to actually probably add maybe another Eight to ten billion mm. to the national capital development plan. Can you increase welfare? I mean, can to, you increase welfare by twenty euro? Let's say, which I, I think a lot of people would say you'd need to do at a minimum. Uh, but that would cost one and a half billion euro. Will we have the one and a half billion euro next year or the year after, or in ten years, as the case may be? Well, these are these are political mm. decisions, mm. and I'm glad actually that the Taoiseach seems to have cottoned on to the problem he created last year. Um, he was kind of implying yesterday that nobody would forgive the state for not doing the kind of things that I've been talking about for the last couple of years. For example, indexing welfare rates. He talks about in the indexing tax rates. Mm. So in other words, you know, not falling into a higher rate tax if you get a small tax increase and so on. And our own thinking, the Labour Party is evolving in that regard. That's expensive. It will cost about one and a half billion euro to fully index tax rates mm. this year. If you're talking about indexing tax rates, why don't you talk about indexing social welfare rates as well? I mean, we talk every year, Michael, ahead of the budget about this big reveal, um, you know, what the social welfare rates are going to be, what's going to be added to the pension. Last year, the increases to social welfare fell well short of the rate of inflation. So mm. um, for the first time since 2013, Irish families experienced a real cut in their living standards. So that's that's unconscionable in a wealthy economy. Yeah. Uh, we can't afford to increase social welfare rates. It's actually about addressing wealth inequality because we have mm. big concentration of wealth at the top. We have people in the bottom 20% mm. who are doing really, really badly and we need to address that gap. And the best way to do that is through our social welfare system. All right. Well, it seemed to me like the Taoiseach listening to him yesterday was saying he'll do a bit of this and a bit of that. He'll put a bit of money into housing, put a bit of money into welfare, put a, a bit of money into some of uh, the things that are impoverishing people at the moment. Uh, and all of that seemed to be a caveat uh, leading up to him saying, we're also going to cut taxes uh, for the highest earners in, in the country. And we'll hear a little bit uh, from Leo Bradker and what he had to say about cutting taxes. Chairperson, as all of you know, I believe that middle-income earners pay too much tax between income tax and USC. It's simply not fair that average full-time workers are hit with the higher rate of income tax. And it's not fair that the tax system erodes any pay increases that they do get or overtime that they work. This isn't the norm in countries that we compete with, like the UK, Canada, Australia, where the cutoff point is much higher. And I mention those countries not because they are English-speaking countries, but because they are the countries that we compete with for talent and labour the most. In line with the programme for government, the budget will make further progress in lifting the point at which an individual pays the higher rate of income tax. And it should also benefit all income taxpayers to ensure fairness. This will increase take-home pay and help with consumer confidence and demand. And it should also help moderate demands on employers 
for bigger pay increases. In many European countries, including very progressive Nordic countries, indexation of tax bans and credits is automatic. It's not considered to be inflationary. It just means that people aren't paying more tax. And that is also my view. All right, that's uh, the Taoiseach uh, again speaking in Dublin Castle yesterday. And he's talking about tax cuts for higher earners. Uh, What uh, the Taoiseach is proposing in these tax cuts will mean nothing at all to 80% of people who are working today and 20% of the workforce will see increases of up to €1,000 or €20 a week in their pay packets. What do you make of that? It's dreadful. Um, And it's just a nakedly political um, comment that the Taoiseach makes repeatedly and I think we can settle now on the notion that he has decided that ahead of the next general election his and Fine Gael's target are the 25% of people in this country who are doing best. Um, well, in fact, if you ask many of those people, what they want is, in fact, they leave the social wage, this idea that uh, to address the cost of living, what we need is actually better public services. You know, we need free GP care for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, we need... Uh, Cheaper childcare, more affordable childcare for them to enable them to go to work. But uh, it's um, funny that the Taoiseach not an extra tenor a week made comparisons with some Scandinavian is, countries mm, there because childcare is free. Childcare is free uh, in public. In, in Norway, uh, I think the minimum wage is about twenty euro an hour. Mm. Uh, welfare rates are uh, well above what they are here in terms of yeah. the cost of living and so affordability. He's very selective, and so he's on, very yeah. selective in, 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 in how he approaches this this question. I mean, uh, he's made no secret, and, and that's fair enough, of the, the fact that, that that's his constituency as he sees it. That's not leadership that we heard from uh, the Taoiseach yesterday. Um, the idea that you'd be bought with your own money. Um, I mean, for a lot of people who are listening this morning who might be attracted to the idea of so-called tax cuts, mm-hmm. somebody has to pay for that. Uh, and well, it's public services. It could be the pensioners. I mean, it it, 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 as things stand, or reduced you know, of it's, all, it's all kite flying at the moment. But as things stand, it looks like high earners are going to get twenty euro a week, and pensioners are going to get ten euro a week. That's how it stands at the moment. So that's the kind of society that the Taoiseach wants to preside over, and that's a call that that he makes. That's not something that we would uh, agree with at all. Uh, you know, we understand that the 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 idea that um, somebody who gets a small pay increase shouldn't be brought into a higher rate of tax. We understand that and these conversations are difficult to have at a time when there's so much money sloshing around in the exchequer Uh, and I'm always loath to tell people what's good for them but we have to look at what's good for society and what's good for everybody in the round uh, and what's a good use of public money and the best use of public money at the moment is invest in the services on which we all depend because we all get value um, from that and it creates social cohesion. Uh, this idea that somebody might be better off having you know 10 or 20 euro a week that they may not necessarily need that much in their pocket is a really if that's the level of debate that we're going to be having ahead of the election and ahead of the budget and indeed ahead of the election then I, I i really really worry and it shows that lessons haven't um, been learned and anyway when the, the teacher talks about you know inflationary pressures on the economy what's going to happen if you give your eye an extra 20 euro a week michael well, more than likely, we're either going to save it or we're going to spend it. And that actually e- increases inflation in the economy and makes things more expensive mm. for everyone. So he, he's made his decision. He's going after the 25% of people he thinks he thinks are natural finnegate voters. Mm. I don't believe that that is the case. I believe that you know those who may be in higher income brackets mm. actually are more concerned about society uh, and public services than the Taoiseach gives them credit for. Is the Taoiseach 
at odds with Michael McGrath and Pascal Dunhu for that matter or is it a case of good cop, bad cop? I think it's a case of good cop, bad cop uh, and I think it's a, a case of uh, them having their cake and eating it. Um, the Taoiseach presents a certain perspective from the government and then the uh, ministers with responsibility for finance and um, public spending wrote in then and write in then and, and, and seek kind of more prudence. I think that's what we're going to be hearing over the next period of time. It looks like, I said it last year, Michael, we're probably going to the long we had the longest run into a budget mm. that we ever had last year. It's getting it's <laughs> getting ain't longer. Nothing yet. It's getting longer uh, every, every year. Okay. At this point, it's all it's it's about speculation. But um, from our point of view, it's about making sure that you know, regular working people are resourced as best as possible, and we invest in the public services that people depend on. That's okay. that's the key to a better society. Jed Nash, thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning. Jed Nash is uh, the Labour Party spokesperson on finance and a TD for Louth and East Meath. Now the countdown is on to the first ever Pride Festival in Navan next month. The festival was, was launched in the town last night uh, and Marco Driscoll was there and spoke to some local ministers. It's very important that the community show support to everybody out there um, because clearly attitudes haven't changed entirely and people need to feel supported. I think they do here tonight there's political representatives from across government uh, local councillors as well and members of the community and the business community as well. That's really, really important. Uh, we, we have changed as a society. When I was when I was uh, Europe minister in the last couple of years, you know, one of the big issues was um, LGBT rights across Europe. Uh, and we're able to lead by example. But clearly not everything is right here too. Uh, and it's important that we keep checking ourselves at home uh, as well. And your own portfolio sport now is obviously very important for inclusivity as well. It's very important and one of the big uh, things in the Sports Capital Grants uh, this year will be inclusivity. Um, you know, Compliance with the Equal Status Act is a very important part of Sports Capital Grants uh, and that will, that will continue. Uh, that's really, really important. But mem- members of the LGBT community are just as active in sports as any other community. So uh, it's really important that sports clubs be as inclusive as possible. Firstly, Minister, welcome back after your maternity leave. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's good to be back. I'm sure, and you touched on it there in your speech at the launch of Navin Pride tonight, but that incident in Navin a few weeks back, and you were obviously on maternity leave at the time, but I suppose your own reaction to it now and how important is a festival like this in sending out a clear message to the people in Navin? Well, I think tonight really sends a very clear message that uh, if you're living in Navin, if you're living in the surrounding areas, if you're living in County Mead or in Ireland, um, this is a place where you can be who you want to be and the community supports you. And we've seen that very clearly, uh, the amount of businesses, the amount of organisations, individuals who have come together to support Navin Pride uh, is absolutely phenomenal. This is the first year and we have a whole series of events, obviously, that will finalise and culminate in the um, in the Pride itself or the Pride itself taking place. So. Just to see that level of support, I think, in itself is a very clear message to the LGBTQ plus community that you are welcome here, that this is your home, that nobody should be treated any differently uh, and that we will all support each other. I know some of your cabinet colleagues and your Fine Gael colleagues today touching on maybe some leadership squabbles within Fine Gael at the moment. Uh, reports in most of the Sunday newspapers yesterday that maybe people aren't happy with Leo Varadkar's leadership. What's your own view on that at the moment? My own view is I think the vast majority of people in our party are fully supportive of uh, Leo Bradker. Um He's doing an excellent job as Taoiseach. Uh, I have no doubt that he will continue to, to, to do his job in the same manner over the next few years. Uh, and I look, forward to him, us, I look forward to him leading us into the next election. Ministers Helen McEntee and Thomas Byrne speaking to Marco Driscoll at uh, the launch of the Navin Pride Festival last night. 
The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. I have a thug who's in charge. This is a political hit job. Republicans are treated far differently at the Justice Department than Democrats. These are the same people who caused the lowest learner catastrophe. That's this deranged Jack, you know, you know who I'm talking about? Jack Smith. What do you think his name used to be? I don't know. Does anybody ever? Jack Smith. Sounds so innocent. He's deranged. But he's the one that caused the lowest learner catastrophe with the IRS. One of the worst things to happen in this country in many, many years. Going after evangelicals and Christians and great Americans of faith. And... They had to pay up, and they had to pay up dearly for it when they got caught. And this is the same guy, deranged Jack Smith. And I watched him yesterday go up and talk. He talked for about two and a half minutes. He was shaking. He was so scared. He didn't want to be there because ultimately these are cowards. They're cowards. And he's a big Trump hater. Openly, he's a Trump hater. And his wife is even more of a Trump hater. I wish her a lot of luck, but he's, he's a bad Trump hater and she's a Trump hater. And you shouldn't put people like that in. And you know, the people looking at Biden, he's a very nice man. They looked at Mike Pence. He had classified documents, no problem. They looked at Biden. He has so many classified documents, they don't know what to do. And he's trying to prevent them from seeing it. That's obstruction. Donald Trump speaking in Georgia over the weekend. Today, he'll be in front of a federal court in Florida where he faces 37 felony charges dealing with how he has handled classified documents. Let's speak to Larry Donnelly, who is a law lecturer with University Galway and a political columnist with the journal .ie. Good morning, Larry, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Very strong words from Donald Trump there about Jack Smith. Now, this is the special counsel at the Department of Justice who has filed the case against him. Uh, he's working to undermine the case publicly. Is that allowable uh, under American law? Well, I, there is a, a lot more latitude uh, in American law, both with respect to the reportage of uh, ongoing court proceedings and indeed what those who are charged uh, or party to the case can say. And that's largely down to uh, the First Amendment. Uh, I, you know, it, it does have to be said that Donald Trump continues to push these things uh, to the very limit, uh, as he has done uh, in other legal proceedings that he's involved in. But what struck me, Michael, about that clip, it really, really is extraordinary uh, just how brazen and defiant uh, Donald Trump remains. It's actually quite, uh, you know, it's actually hard to fathom, uh, you know, the way his attitude towards uh, all of this. And again, um, that he inspires so much loyalty and so much support uh, among that hardcore, uh, the key question here, I think, ultimately is going to be, uh, you know, A, uh, does some of that support start to fade away uh, because people say there's too much stuff here? Or B, uh, is it does it become the fact that he's so ensnared uh, in various legal proceedings? We know when he faces trial in New York in March. We know now he's going to face a trial uh, in Florida. He could also face trials 
in Washington uh, and in Georgia. Uh, is it, could he become so ensnared by all of this that he can't effectively run the presidential campaign? Yeah, and he was talking about Jack Smith's wife uh, as well, which I thought was all the more incredible, claiming that Jack Smith was taking the case against him because he hates Trump uh, and that his wife is an even bigger Trump hater, as he puts it. Yeah, I mean, look, it's just the kind of, you know, nasty, vicious personal attacks that Donald Trump uh, is known very well for. It should be said, again, again, a lot of listeners won't be familiar with, with Jack Smith, but Jack Smith has a sterling uh, reputation. Uh, he's widely regarded as a, a prosecutor's prosecutor, someone uh, so expert that he was, you know, before he took this on, uh, he was at The Hague. Uh, so he, this guy is incredibly able. Uh, he's relatively uh, non-political. And, you know, again, one of the things mm. he's done here is he he could have, if he wanted to, he could have pushed uh, to have uh, this case heard uh, in Washington, where uh, he'd be much more likely to get uh, a Trump-hating uh, jury, uh, to use the president, former president's own words. Instead, um, he's brought it in uh, Miami, and that's, I think, due to his fidelity to uh, to the law, because the events here, you know, happened in Mar-a-Lago, and that's probably, uh, you know, the, the the best venue for it. But from a prosecution point of view, it's going to be a lot harder to secure a conviction uh, against Donald Trump uh, in the Miami area uh, than it would be in Washington, D.C. Some people might argue that the best form of defense is attack. Uh, Donald Trump certainly is attacking Jack Smith, but not just Jack Smith, uh, we heard him mention Joe Biden, the President of uh, the United States now, and how he's handled documents and he's blocking investigations into that. But he's gone further and accused Joe Biden, President Biden, uh, of taking a-, a bribe and is asking, why is Jack Smith not investigating that? Yeah, I mean, this is a, 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 something that's gained a lot of currency in right-wing circles. There's evidently this document, uh, you know, which seems to show that Biden... Uh, accepted a, a five million dollar bribe uh, in exchange for uh, in, in connection with some of the dealings with Ukraine. Um, you know, look, uh, you know, this stuff has been investigated, it's been looked into. There doesn't seem to be very much uh, to it, but that is what uh, part of what uh, Donald Trump is going to say. It's going to be kind of this uh, what aboutery scenario. Mm. He'll also he'll also bring up uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, repeatedly, uh, and her uh, document, the classified documents that she undeniably was uh, in possession of. She didn't obstruct and fight and obfuscate the way Trump did, but she was in possession of them. And it's worth noting, Michael, that when Donald Trump was campaigning for president in 2016, he said things like, we need a president in the White House understands what the word classified means. Mm. And now look at where Donald Trump finds himself. So again, it's the bluster, it's the hypocrisy, but it's just, again, to go back to that clip, mm. he's just so brazen and no. undaunted. It's extraordinary. Oh, and I think we could play clips all day to uh, demonstrate how brazen uh, uh, he is. Uh, he, he is using um, what would seem to me at this stage to be typical conspiracy arguments, this idea that it's the establishment against us. Uh, it's them against us. Uh, why... Don't they do that to them if they do it 
to us uh, and that sort of thing. And that seems to play well into the supporters' minds uh, and there are many of them. Uh, but what is it that Donald Trump is accused of here? Because uh, he took an awful lot of documents, it would seem, back to Mar-a-Lago, his uh, residency in Miami. And some of them had to do with U.S. nuclear programs. That's right. Yeah, I mean, these are documents, that, you know, in nuclear information, uh, documents about uh, the United States defense and weaponry capabilities, uh, even something called the Pentagon attack plan, which I believe has to do with the defense uh, to be mounted of the Pentagon in, in event, the event there were an attack on the United States. Uh, so some really, really serious uh, things. And he had them in places like the bathroom, a shower, a bedroom. Uh, and indeed, he seems to have been taking people in uh, and saying to them, look, I shouldn't be showing you this to you. But look here, look at these documents, look at this and look at that, Mm. um, which is quite extraordinary. And also, uh, it really undercuts uh, what he said before, because remember, what he said was that um, when I was president, I could I could declassify documents simply by saying it in my head that, oh, I've declassified them. So now they're no longer classified. Well, now here he is. We have audio recordings in which he is saying to people, uh, I shouldn't show you these documents because they're classified. Uh, So it totally undercuts uh, what he had said before. And that's why, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of reportage uh, about his difficulty in finding lawyers. And indeed, the lawyers who were representing him, once they read the entirety of of the indictment, they walked away and said, we can't be part uh, of this defense team because Mm -hmm. it's just so all over the place and it would undermine Uh, our professional credibility in future if we took this case on. So, look, I, you know, and I'm looking at this and, you know, looking at it in the whole, uh, given the political climate in the United States, uh, I don't think that this case is a slam dunk by any stretch of the imagination. I think um, in Florida, I think it will be tough uh, to get a conviction. Uh, And the other thing I'm watching for is there are two angles at this. Some people are saying that Donald Trump might think that he can walk away from this, that he'll be found. Uh, he'll be acquitted by a jury and that that will stand to him and that he might uh, want a speedy trial. And certainly the defiant tone of his remarks uh, would suggest that's a possibility. I'm not so sure. It's always been his strategy in litigation to push it off, push it off, push it off, push it off. And if he can, he could push it past uh, November 2024 when if he were to be elected president, he could dismiss the whole thing uh, on his first day in office. Okay, and it could help his campaign uh, to become the next president of the United States. Uh, It's not going to conclude anytime soon, though, this case, is it? No, it's not. I mean, you know, look, it would be, I know that Jack Smith wants a speedy trial and is pushing hard for that, but it would, to me, uh, it would be kind of bizarre uh, if a trial in this instance took place before uh, the March trial date that's been set uh, for the criminal uh, charges that Trump faces in New York. So, yeah, I don't think this thing is going to end anytime soon. Larry, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today, as always. Larry Donnelly, law lecturer with uh, the University of Galway and a political columnist with thejournal.ie. Michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Fianna Falls, Tommy Riley has been elected as a chairperson of Meath County Council. Marco Driscoll has been speaking to the new Cahirlock. Councillor, a lot of moving words said about you in there today before your election as Cahirlock. What does it mean to be the first citizen of the county of Meath? Well, it, 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 it's a fantastic honour, you know, and. Uh, 
to hear the words from a lot of people in there, opposition people in particular, uh, was was very encouraging and it was emotional. You know, uh, I try to work with everybody, irrespective of their politics or their parties, and uh, I try not to fall out with anyone. Uh, try and I, I'm all I'm an amicable person that wants to bring people along rather than divide, and. Uh, I used to say, you know, if Ian Paisley came down to me and asked me to do something, if I could do it, I'd do it for him. And if I thought he could do something for me, I'd go to him and ask him to do it for me. And that's the way I want to work. Um, I want to go forward with that. I think we have a great executive here. Uh, we have a great new chief executive uh, in Fiona Lawless and the team, along with her, that brought this county from 10 years ago where we had a deficit of over 12 million. Now to, it's in the black. So it's fantastic. Uh, my main aim in the coming years, and one of them is nearly at fruition, is the Mary Special School here in Johnstown. I've been working and trying on that for so many, so many, many years. But I think education, recreation and sporting facilities are, is lacking so much in this area. In, in every county, there are too many large-scale developments taking place without these facilities. If we take Johnstown, for instance, that we have been left behind over the years and the millions of pounds collected in fees, but hopefully in the coming year we'll be able to launch our new uh, community hub in Johnstown and also uh, playing playing facilities, which is something I have been fighting for for a number of And it's not just in Johnstown, it's throughout the county and throughout the town. If it wasn't for the likes of Simonstown, O'Mahony's Claremont Stadium and a few of them, We'd have nothing in the town. So that's my main aim. Uh, housing, of course, we have to keep at the housing end of it. I cannot understand how housing ministers or officials in the department cannot pull in some of the big builders that's here and say, there's a site, I want 200 apartments on it, and it could be up in six to eight months. This, this, the weather going on is ridiculous. And all governments, there's no question about it, these I know builders around this town, around the county, around the country, that if they got the site tomorrow and the infrastructure put in place, then there are two, four hundred, five hundred thousand apartments up in a couple of months or houses. But they're not doing that. They're not grasping that. The government is not grasping that. It's 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 not rocket science what can be done. And you were chairperson on one previous occasion. I was two or five. 205, 204, 205, yeah. And how much has changed since then? Oh my God, it's, it's so big now. It's, it's uh, like the county, we're, we're what, uh, what 228,000 people now, you know. I think at that time we might have been 140 or 50,000, you know. And we have a lot of uh, people coming in from different countries and, and that. And just for, when we look across from where we're standing now, we have probably 60 or 80, maybe 100 people from the Ukraine. And I'm so saddened by that. I spoke to them there, stopped with them on the road there last Sunday evening week. They're coming out with little plastic bags on their kids and they're going up just to sit along the vine. And they left good homes, they left good jobs. And I, I feel for them kind of people, you know. Now, there are others that's exploiting it. And I just read that in the paper yesterday, but I, I know that for a long time. But the people that's losing their homes, losing their places and their little families, some of them I see just round down the sofa floor and looking... My heart goes out to them. And the esteem of the office then as well, Cahir, like it was mentioned in the chamber there prior to your election and how much Nick Killian had done for, I suppose, the office, and I'm looking at the names here on the chain of office. What does the the office stand for, I suppose, and, and what does it feel like to, to hold that office now? Well, it, it, it's a great honour, and when you go, 
even even as a councillor, to be a councillor is a great honour. Like, I would go maybe to a funeral in Louth or in Cavan or in Mon and some of that, and people would see you and know you and come over to you and ask you questions. And I, I'm amazed the type of people that come to me looking for advice. Uh, people, very well educated people, and high class jobs, but that come to me asking me how do you do this how do you go about that and then you have people living in houses living in housing estates and older people like they're not into technology and they need help you know uh, and, and that's not been done for them there's an awful lot of lonely people out there too I think we're not doing enough for them now we have a little thing up beside us there in, in, in uh, Bechtiff football club has uh, a, a retirement group there and there's up to 100 people using that. We have the Waterston Football Club that I'm a member of all my life that we now have, that I got into a couple of years back when the daycare centre closed in Navan. I got them in there to the football club and it's all level ground. They can go out and walk around the pitch or walk around the place. And it's just fantastic to come from all over the county to it. I do call to them occasionally. And those type of things, to get people out of their homes, to get them away from that just sitting there looking at four walls or looking at the television or that to get them out there was one man during the pandemic and he used to come up to the Hill of Tara where I would walk a good bit and he used to come up for a cup of tea just to meet someone for nothing else I don't think we're doing enough for people like that and hopefully hopefully in the coming year I can do something but as I said the educational aspect of here where we're standing in Johnstown and to see St Mary's Special School it's just fantastic to see that nearly at fruition. Congratulations again, Cahirla. Thank you, and thank you for... I want to thank LMFM for the great support that to me down the years. Uh, without them, they're a fantastic station. The new Cahirla of Mead County Council, Tommy Riley, speaking to Mark O'Driscoll. The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now, if you ride an e-scooter, you should have to wear a helmet. Uh, this is what AA Ireland is calling on the government to legislate in respect of. And its head of communications, Paddy Common, is on the line. Thank you, Paddy. And uh, uh, how are you, I think, is uh, one of uh, the questions that spring to mind after seeing that frightening incident on the M50 with an e-scooter. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think everyone was pretty shocked when they saw that footage because it, you know, it was madness. It was a, a guy who, anyone who hasn't seen it, it was a guy weaving in and out of, of traffic on the M50 um, over the weekend and travelling at a speed, which is certainly not what normal e-scooters can do. It looked like he was he was certainly north of 50-odd kilometres per hour, which can happen if you de-restrict these scooters. So. Um, really, just we know that legislation is due, and, and you know I, I got a statement from the Department of Transport yesterday, and I believe the legislation is due out this week in terms of rubber stamping what what we will have for e-scooters in terms because at the moment as it is they're illegal. There's no there's no particular rule um, in place for them. It is been tolerated, but there's but technically they are illegal currently. So what is expected is that uh, there there will be um, rules in place in terms of speed limits for them for 25 kilometres per hour. Um, when the rental market opens, so you'll see lots of companies coming in uh, that will rent them to people, and those will be a little bit more regulated. And mm. that we'll know who's on those. We'll they'll be able to remotely slow those down. They'll prevent people riding them on pavements and stuff like that using GPS technology. But mm. the difficulty is, and as you, as you see, Michael, from that footage, is that we don't know who's riding them, and in some cases, people are putting themselves and other users at, at big danger. Mm. 
I, I think um, the plan, or, or at least uh, uh, as I'm expecting it from what I've been hearing, is uh, that they'll be restricted to speeds of 25 kilometres an yeah. hour. After that, then, you'd need it to be like any other vehicle, tax insurance uh, and so on, like a, a motorbike or something. But 25 kilometres an hour is still pretty fast, isn't it? I mean, if you hit something at that speed, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and we've seen we've seen fatalities, we've seen injuries over the past two years or so uh, on e-scooters, and you know I've read reports from Connolly Hospital did a report on on the injuries that are sustained from e-scooters, and they're pretty alarming. Uh, and but they also had noted that sixty percent of the users that they had seen weren't wearing a helmet. Now, what's it's unlikely that helmets are going to be made mandatory in this current legislation, and and we think that's a mistake. They behave differently to bicycles. They're, you know, they they have smaller wheels. They handle differently. They brake differently. So, they. But I think the worry is that they don't want to bring to make helmets mandatory on those mm. when they don't have helmets mandatory on bicycles. But uh, I think they're two very different things. Mm. So hopefully we're not looking at a situation where twelve months down the line we've seen. Uh, incident we've seen high profile accidents there was there was a young guy killed off one only a couple of weeks ago and he didn't collide with anyone else he mm. hit his head off the ground so uh, you know, that was, this that is was a the trap on the bicycle wasn't it on the e-bike in Tala yeah, yeah yeah but there was uh, there was another e-scooter incident as well I believe but yeah, scooter, one in Tala, yeah the one, the one yeah. in Tala again he, you know head head injury and, and mm. And, probably, and, and but you're saying, and I mean, the reason I mentioned the bicycles, I think you were saying that you'd feel safer yourself on a bicycle than you would a, a, on a scooter. And you come at, at this from a, a different perspective than a, a lot of us do, and a lot of us give out about them as being dangerous. But you're interested in every form of transport, and I, I'm sure that uh, there are circumstances in which you'd accept that these would be good forms of, of transport. But there are safety concerns, and a helmet just makes sense to you, does it? Oh, absolutely. Like, we're not against them, but by all means, especially around Dublin City Centre, they can make a lot of sense to a lot of people. But in terms of safety, just I think it's it's wrong to ask people to make the decision. Uh, we should we should legislate to have people by default safer than not. You know, people might argue it's a bit of a nanny state thing to do, but in the case of these scooters, I just think people are very vulnerable on them. They're very exposed and why put people at risk unnecessarily. Well, look at motorbikes. Uh, I mean, there was a time when those arguments were being made. You didn't have to wear a helmet. If you forced bikers to wear a helmet, uh, it was acting like a, a nanny state. Uh, nobody would do it anyway because everybody looks cool apart from liking mm. the feel of the wind in their hair and all of that. The legislation was brought in. Everybody wears helmets almost without exception on motorbikes these days. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's part of the course to, to wear those. So it just... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hard to see where um, the, the logic of not having helmets being mandatory in this. So, so hopefully we don't find ourselves in a position where we're seeing 
any high profile incidents we'd hate to see that Alright Paddy thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning Thanks, Paddy Cummin is Head of Communications with AA Ireland let me bring you some of uh, the texts coming to us uh, today uh, somebody wondering um, what politicians have to say about the national strike by retained firefighters uh, across uh, the country today uh, a text um, from Deirdre and Kells about the budget saying that they need to pump money into Our Lady's Hospital in Navin if they have all of this money and they could also build a second hospital and put it in Kells she says well done Deirdre thank you indeed uh, for your WhatsApp message to the programme today Ellen in touch with us uh, who says what, wasn't it the Labour Party uh, who cut women's pensions and took medical cards from sick children and don't forget jobs bridge from Joan Burton? People won't forget the Labour Party are finished, says Ellen. I think that message for Jed Nash, who was speaking to us earlier. Uh, Tom in touch uh, saying, ask Jed Nash, how do we get our local borough council back in Drogheda? You know, the one he voted to get rid of. But how do we get it back and have a, a real shot of getting city status? Uh, and Tom also uh, talks uh, about the new Mayor of Drogheda saying, I said to you last week about our local politicians letting us down and hoping that they wouldn't. Three unelected politicians uh, who have a vote uh, and they've gone and made one of them uh, mayor. Uh, They overlooked Joanna Byrne again, an elected representative, an absolute sham, says Tom. We've, uh, that's uh, in relation uh, to the new Mayor Eileen Tully. Uh, Stephen Andrade, what's happening too? He says, we could do with money back to help paying our electricity and gas money back for helping towards our groceries from all of the money the government is after making surely we should get something Stephen says and thanks indeed for that. Now the big question for a lot of people today is if Crow Park will give Louth GAA the 7 million euro that it now needs to build its new stadium in Dundalk well that's one question but because work on the project is due to commence next month the real question is what happens if Crow Park doesn't cough up. Let's speak uh, to Colm Corrigan, Head of Sport at LMFM. Colm, good morning. Do you care to answer that question? If they are 7 million short and uh, the contractors are on site, what happens then? Yes, well, that's the million-dollar question, or maybe the seven-million-dollar question, uh, Michael. Yeah, we were told this uh, information uh, last night. The price tag for the new stadium coming in in the region of €25 million, uh, Euro, that uh, uh, contract awarded last night, the main contract going to local company uh, Ganson. Uh, but as you all know, and we know people in your programme, politicians and the uh, public, uh, the way inflation and prices, everything going up at the moment, and unfortunately, from Loud's point of view, this stadium project is no different. Uh, it's really shot up in terms of uh, you know the cost involved 25 million it was actually initially 29 million they managed to shave 4 million off that figure so it's going to be in around 25 million but uh, Loud themselves uh, they estimate that they have about 18 million guaranteed from their end 15 almost 15 million of that Michael you may uh, recall coming from the Immigrant Investor Programme that controversial uh, programme which is now closed of course Uh, but that money has to be that money has to be spent and that's uh, one of the issues that Peter Fitzpatrick uh, raised last night you know there's, there's no there can be no holding back on going 
going ahead with this work, uh, Michael, because that um, IIP money, let's say, there is a time limit. That money has to be spent in the next few months. So if Loud don't uh, don't get up and running with the stadium, that money could well be lost. And that's a massive uh, that's a massive chunk of the uh, within the 18 million that Loud have raised already. But as you say, there's this seven million, and that's the big question now. Where is mm. that going to come from? Are Loud going to be able to within that seven million? Are they going to be able to fundraise any more of that? But there's no question that you know the onus is going to have to fall really ultimately on Crow Park and so far the signs haven't been all that promising from GA headquarters there's been no firm guarantee there have been a lot of meetings there have been a lot of briefings between the loud uh, uh, people and the Crow Park authorities the financial uh, figures at Crow Park uh, you know, talking about how much this whole thing was going to cost but it's in, a re- in the region of 7 million uh, whether Crow Park are going to cough up whether they will make that available well time will tell but now they're adamant uh, Peter Fitzpatrick has been adamant uh, the 17th of July the work is starting on the stadium Ganson have the mm. main contract all the work that will be going on will be under their stewardship and it's full steam ahead And but the hope is that that 7 million that it can be made up as time goes on Michael Okay, 7 million is close to a quarter of uh, the overall price, 25 million. Is it possible that we'll end up with three quarters of a stadium, a quarter of it unfinished? Uh, well, loud supporters will be hoping that's not going to be the case. Um, you know, Peter Fitzpatrick, I think he's done very well to get the loud stadium to this point, uh, particularly the IIP uh, programme. I think that was a real masterstroke, you know, getting that sort of 14.8 million uh, euro in the bank. Uh, that, that A lot of that has been paid in already. I think it's all uh, it'll be all in place by September. Um, you know, but... Um, you know, well, the fear would be that, you know, come the end of it, as, as work goes on, that, you know, the money is going to run out and that sh- a shortfall of seven million then is going to result in, you know, maybe at some some point uh, work coming to a halt. But look, there, there's still time. Mm. There's, there's still, you know, Loud are still holding out uh, hope. They're still organising meetings with uh, Crow Park. But now, you know, it really is time for the GA authorities, I think, to stand up. Um, one thing that was mentioned at the meeting last night, you may recall the uh, problems that Crow Park had with uh, Parky keep the development down there and the massive overruns in terms of the cost and a lot of issues with financing Parky Keeve and I think there is a worry in Crow Park you know and they're, you know, they're, they're being ultra safe on this that you know they don't want their fingers burnt again and, and they want to make every, everything make sure everything is right and you know if they are to, to commit money to loud that it's all done properly and that everything say is, is accounted for and it's done you know yeah. with, with, with making sure that there's, there's going to be no, over, no overruns and that that money is going to be put in and it's going to be it's going to get the job finished. Mm. And that's fair enough. Uh, I'm sure everybody would uh, agree uh, and nobody would want it to be any other way for that matter. But that's if they decide that it will work that way and they will put the money in. But if they don't put the money in, uh, nobody is going to want uh, the stadium left unfinished uh, with 25% of the work not complete. Uh, But what other options uh, has Louth GAA in front of it? How else can it raise the money? Well, there's a there's a lot of a lot, a lot of fundraising efforts even to get you know one or two million, uh, Michael, because mm. there was a successful house draw, a double house draw, ran a couple of years ago that brought in one point two million euro, and that was a huge effort. So, but like I mean, one point two out of what twenty five million on top of all that, yeah. you know, it, it's only a drop in the ocean. Where allowed go? You know, another plea went out last night. Anybody out there, benefactors, anybody that wants to contribute, <laughs> there are a lot of millionaires and even billionaires in Loud. Mm. Uh, maybe this is the time for them to come forward. You know, it's a once off 
of opportunity. Uh, Blood have uh, been without a county ground. They're the only gr- uh, county in the country, GA uh, county in the in the country, Michael, that doesn't have its own ground. It's been going on far too long. It's what about seventy years or so. The old athletic grounds. Most people now don't even remember the athletic grounds in, in Dundalk. So they've been without a home. Peter Fitzpatrick still stressing, you know, mm. we'll get this done. Uh, they still the aim is to have the first game being played in September 2024. That could be maybe a lot of people will see that as being a bit ambitious. But Peter Fitzpatrick still uh, holding out hope that that will be the case. Okay. But there is a lot of talking and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot, lot of uh, I suppose uh, talks to, to take place and a lot of uh, discussion still yeah. going on with uh, Crow Park. So loud now, just well, holding it. out hope that that, that that it will still happen. For that's that it, Colm. I suppose uh, I suppose uh, everybody will be hoping that all the talks are unnecessary and that the talks with Crow Park will prove to be fruitful uh, and that will be the case as I say uh, as far as everybody hopes uh, but after that you're saying uh, there's the prospect of raising another little bit of money um, maybe a, a donor I take it uh, there's the prospect of taking out further loans uh, or mm, that, that, that yeah that that might that might be an option or the clubs instance, t- yeah, yeah. Or mm, what about yeah, the, well, clubs? the clubs yeah, yeah well the, cl- the clubs the uh, clubs the top table have been adamant all along uh, the clubs are already being are still being levied on the Darv or the training grounds the tra- training uh, centre in, in Darv or there's still a levy applying to clubs for that now that will be running running out in the next uh, year or two but um, the top table say they have no intention of applying a levy to clubs clubs they say are stretched as they are they've got their own projects they've got their own bills to play, pay so loud the county board don't want to go down that route now one, one option that might be available for instance Michael out of the 7 million if uh, for talk say Crow Park maybe were to fund say 5 million and out of the shortfall of 2 million then it might be an option to try and make up that 2 million taking out a loan of some sorts uh, you know which might be manageable uh, you know over a certain amount of uh, time so that, that that hasn't been ruled out but Loud want to be debt free if if at all possible they, you know they don't want to be carrying a loan forwards they want that 7 million uh, euro and Loud supporters uh, you know they they will say perhaps you know going back to the infamous Leinster final of uh, 2010 when a lot of Loud supporters still feel that Loud were hard done by they weren't treated very well maybe this is the chance now for the Crow Park authorities to stand up and say hey let, you know 13 years on you know here, here, here's a gesture here's the 7 million Michael maybe they will uh, people can let us know as always 0419832000 is our telephone number text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lm fm.ie. Colm, thank you very much indeed uh, for that. Colm Corrigan, Head of Sport at LMFM. 086 1800 658. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Legislation banning uh, the sale of vaping products uh, to people under the age of 18, 18 goes uh, to its second stage in uh, the Dáil this afternoon. It's legislation uh, that is uh, being welcomed by Vape Business Ireland. Paul Malone, spokesperson for the group, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Paul. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Uh, this will result in you losing a lot of customers, will it not? Why is it that you're welcoming this legislation? Well, as an organisation, Vape Business Ireland has been calling for the introduction of a full ban on the sale of vaping products to under-18 since 2016. And we're totally, for the avoidance of any doubt, uh, we all as a trade body have been looking for this actively for the last number of years. Why so? So, um, Because 
nobody wants youth access to vaping products. You know, the introduction of the ban will go a long way towards making sure that the vaping products are only available to adult ex-smokers. Mm. Okay. Uh, and why is it that you don't want to sell them to children? Because it, similar to the tobacco legislation, I think that it is only right that it's uh, available to people over the age of 18. Why so, though? I mean, tobacco, I mean, the, the answer is very simple. If I asked you about cigarettes, you'd say, well, cigarettes cause cancer. Correct. And as I said, like, we've been calling for this ban since 2016. No, but why, why, why is it that you want uh, e-cigarettes to be banned uh, for under-18s? Because we feel as an organisation that that is the right way to do It's the right way to be. Okay. Uh, and is there any particular reason for that? Uh, is it your concern that... Uh, children will end up getting cancer or is there something else at play? No, we just, as I said, since 2016 we've been calling for the introduction of the ban and for anyone under the age of 18. Right. We think it's the right way to be. Okay. Um, is it because you're selling a very addictive substance? Um, no, as I said, no. It, well, we're, the reason we're calling for this, we've been calling for it since 2016 and that is the, you know, the reason we've been calling for for we want this to be available to only uh, over 18. Okay. I, I, I'm still, sorry, I'm sorry Paul, um, uh, I'm not trying to catch you out or anything. I still, I'm, still oh, no. not, I'm still not sure why you want to ban the sale of your products, uh, which it, it, it gives you a livelihood and your members a livelihood, uh, to people under the age of 18, because a lot of people under the age of 18 are buying them from you. Why, why, what's the uh, logic in banning these products to children in your mind? Well, vaping is a proven harm reduction tool that helps adults transition away from smoking. And we, to date, across Ireland, vaping has helped more than 200,000 adults to kick, kick the habit. So we just feel as if it's the best way to be would be to, you know, have this only as a transition away from smoking. Mm. Well, that's what it used to be uh, when it was available in a, a few shops uh, and uh, pharmacies. Uh, that's what it was. Uh, there was one or two, maybe three or four types of e-cigarettes. They were very plain. They looked like cigarettes. There was no flavours. There was no coloured packaging. Uh, and they were used as a way of coming off cigarettes, a, a withdrawal method. Uh, that's not the case now, though. Well, the, since the introduction of disposable vapes, you know, the, the market has changed somewhat. But if you go into... And the 6,000 flavours and the coloured packaging uh, and so on. Uh, I mentioned uh, last week, I think it was, I was talking to a 13-year-old uh, about her local disco and she said three things happen at the disco. Dancing, shifting and vaping. Now, okay. that, that's what's commonplace in rural Ireland today for 13-year-olds. Uh, and they're buying those products off you. Um, why well, do you... If, you if, you're, if you're opposed... Uh, or if you're opposed to selling them to under-18s, why don't you voluntarily decide to uh, stop selling them to under-18s? Well, if you go out yourself and try and purchase one of these products in a, you know, spa, a centre, or the vast majority of vape stores throughout the country, even though these people and these outlets are not, at the moment, obliged to not sell to anybody, they don't. They they won't do it voluntarily, and the vast majority of people, you know, uh, who are in the vape business, 
do not sell to under 18s and will ask for ID, even though they don't have to. Okay, so where do the so, kids get them? Well, that's a question for, you know, it's, that's a question that would like to be, you know, answered. And I think it maybe could be from, I don't know, is there online sales? Is there sales for, from mm. places that, you know, vapor products wouldn't be the, Primary um, I don't know, but there's an awful lot of vaping shops and I can't imagine um, a, a, any adult uh, taking up vaping uh, because it's cool and trendy. That's what kids are doing. Uh, and undoubtedly, they're getting their products from the vape shops uh, around the country. Whether somebody else is buying them for them or whatever else, I don't know, but that would be, be hard to conceive given the amount of children who are using vapes. Correct. Um, like, as a national spokesperson for this representative body, I'm only in a position to speak the reaction of our member retailers. Okay, but will this put some of your member retailers out of business? Well, not really, because there is hundreds of thousands of ex-smokers who are now vapors, who have transitioned. And the, none of our members would be reliant on this under-18's trade to survive. And I think if you delve bigger in, deeper into it, you know, we are in favour of a, you know, a retailer register system, mm. you know, and if people, you know, if people are found to be selling these products to under 18s, they get fined and possibly, um, you know, have to deal with the law then as well. Mm. Okay, what should that fine be, do you think? Well, I think it should be a minimum of 5,000. Okay, okay. And your, me- yeah, and your members would be happy with that. Well, as I said, you know, all I can do is, as a national spokesperson, I'm only in a position to speak about the reaction of a retailer. I'm mm. a unanimous support for the decision to ban the sale of vaping products to under-18s. We're absolutely in favour of this, and many retailers have already been strictly enforcing this on a voluntary basis. Very good. OK, well, it looks like it's, got, like it's going to be on a legislative basis uh uh, in uh, the short uh, term. Paul, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, for taking our call and for speaking to us uh, this morning. Paul Malone, spokesperson for Vape Business Ireland. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Now, the Oireachtas Special Committee on Assisted Dying, as you've been hearing this morning, is to begin hearings and deliberations over Gino Kenny's Dying with Dignity Bill. This will allow people to assist others to die with dignity, as the bill puts it. Tom Curran joins us now. A very good morning to you, Tom, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I know this is something uh, that you feel very strongly about, uh, indeed something that your former partner, Mary Fleming, uh, felt very strongly about and something uh, that she would have liked to have been possible for her when she passed. Uh, I think people will be somewhat taken aback uh, because I'm sure a lot of people will remember Mary. She was a vigorous campaigner. It's December 13, isn't it, uh, since uh, you lost your partner? December, uh, yes, yes. Hmm. December 2013. Sorry, yeah. I, thought you, I thought you meant the 13th of December. No, <laughs> no sorry, okay, it was the 20th yeah. of December. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's t- coming up to 10 years. Yeah, yeah. okay. And Mary felt so strongly about 
having this as a, a right legally that she took a, a case to the courts and ended up in the Supreme Court over it? Yes. Uh, yeah, her, her, Mary had MS and Mary's MS progressed. And as she put it herself, and I've said this loads of times to people like yourself and to other people, that uh, she felt that the MS was taken away. She was, it was taking control of her life. But she didn't want it to have control of her death. She didn't want a long, lingering, possibly painful death. And she didn't want her grandchildren and people around her to have to suffer that either. So she felt that when her time, as she put it herself, was right, uh, that there was no, no, that the quality of life that she had was no longer worth having, uh, that she felt that she wanted to die. Now, the, the right to do that is there since 1993 with the Suicide Act, when suicide be, no longer mm. was a criminal act. Uh, but the unfortunate thing is that getting a peaceful death for yourself is not that easy. The, the, the method or means of, of providing that, and this is where the assistance comes in, that you need to be provided with the means for a peaceful death. And that's all that people like Marley are asking for. Uh, and you supported her, and uh, you continue yes. to campaign today uh, for this bill, uh, um, which got the support of uh, the Dáil, has now gone in, into committee uh, where they'll deliberate a, on it. Um, was that yes. difficult for you? I mean, I can't imagine... Um, that it was a, an easy position for Mary to be in or for you to be in. Um, how difficult was it for you? It, well, to me, uh, again, it's something I've said very often. It's a real test of love. Uh, I mean, what is love? Is love a selfish act where you want the person to be around for your sake all the time? Or do you want to comply with the wishes of the person that you love? And in my case, Mary had made this decision and I was behind her decision. It, was not, it w- wasn't something I gave any thought to. It never occurred to me that this was an issue at all until Mary brought it up. I mean, I'm, I'm in my 70s now. Mm. So I, I, I've gone through a lot of life. In fact, I worked with the Samaritans for a long time trying to prevent people from taking their own lives. Mm. But it never occurred to me that this was an issue that people might want to and, and have a very good reason for. Uh, and as I say, it, to me, it was a real test of love uh, as wh- whether I, I truly love Mary or not to support her, or did I just want her in my life for my sake? Uh, but uh, my decision was that if that was what Mary wanted, then I was completely behind her. Mm. Uh, it must be a, a very uh, hard decision for anybody to make. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you spoke about choices, and I think that is at the essence of the legislation. It's something that somebody would choose to do. But regardless yeah. of the logical reasons for doing it, uh, it goes against everything uh, that uh, is instinctive, isn't it? Uh, and to actually decide to end your own life uh, like that must be a, a very difficult decision for people to come to. Yes, but but the instinct that you talk about it is is almost a learned instinct. It's something that you assume that people just want to continue on living. But when you when you take into account the quality of that life that they're living, then surely they are the people who who are, have a right to decide that, providing they have the rationality to understand the decision they're making. You know, this is a very crucial point that the person has to, in my view, the person has to understand the decision they're making, uh, because otherwise uh, 
people could, at a whim, not really understand that this is something that would put an end to their life and avail of it. So that there has to be rationality in in the person, mm. and and their illness can't take that rationality away. Uh, and I mean that's that. This is what makes it quite complex, and why a bill uh, is a, a very complex issue as well. But there are plenty of examples. I mean, it has been legal in a lot of countries for quite some time. And uh, countries in Europe and countries around the world, it's recently become legal in, in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Canada was, was a, a short while ago. Uh, Oregon and Washington were the first states in America to make it legal. And th- that's th- there well over 20 years ago. And it has worked perfectly there. I mean, lots of the opposition to this they bring up this concept of the slippery slope, hmm. that if you bring it in, then it'll immediately start to extend the people that, that, that can avail of it. Hmm. That hasn't happened in and, and, and will result in euthanasia. I mean, I think that's the um, strongest yes. argument uh, against this type of legislation. I think we'll be hearing but, but that from some of the it, it, committee members, uh, because there's some pretty conservative politicians, uh, including absolutely. the chair uh, yes. of this committee. Yes, yeah, and, and, and people like David Quinn, the senator, is on it. And, and I've spoken uh, at, on platforms with David, and David is completely opposed to this. And I, I accept that there are people that are completely opposed to it, and morally and religiously and that sort of thing find it abhorrent that anybody would want to take their own life and should be helped. But that's their view, and, mm. and let them live their life that way. Mm. But don't try to impose that on somebody who doesn't believe that. Okay. That's all that we ask for. It's and that people should have the choice. Uh, but the other concern uh, that you hear from people is that um, some people may think, oh, I'm only in the way, um, I'm nothing but a, a problem, and everybody else would be better off if I was gone, uh, whether they're older people or uh, they feel like that for some other reason, uh, and that they could feel pressurised into getting, yes. out, getting out of people's way. Uh, and and th- that's a very valid point. And to me, it's, a, it's an, an awful indictment of society that if our society makes people feel that way, then we should be looking at ourselves, not at them. We should be looking at ourselves as to why our society does that to a person. Because it's only society that does that, that makes them feel as if they're in the way, instead of us doing everything we can to make their lives as comfortable as possible. But we're not doing that. And, and maybe we should, instead of going out and complaining about the people that, that want rationally to end their lives, maybe we should look at the, the way we treat people who want to live. I think uh, one of uh, the questions asked uh, about this type of legislation is if there are safeguards in place to stop that kind of thing happening. Uh, do you believe that there are in this bill? Yes. Well, the, the, the bill... The bill isn't perfect by any means. There was a previous bill put forward by John Halligan some time ago. Uh, now, and, and to me, and, and I, I, I've spoken to Gino about it, to me, Gino's bill was, was far better. Or, sorry, uh, John, John Halligan's, Halligan's bill was right. far better. Mm-hmm. But, but Gino was quite open to his bill being uh, modified, mm. you know, to, to change us to it. And, and, uh, and that is why it goes through all these passages of the Oireachtas. Uh, the committee now uh, may recommend uh, amendments and uh, it'll exactly. go on from there. Yes, yeah. The best we can hope from the committee is that they will come back and say, yes, this is something that it should be seriously looked at and that people should have the right 
Mm. And, and if, if, if they come back with that, then the, the committee can't legislate. The committee can only make recommendations, same mm. as uh, citizens' assemblies and things like that. The legislation has to be made by the Oireachtas itself. Mm. Uh, what uh, amendments would you like made uh, to Gino Kenny's bill? Uh, what points in John Halligan's bill uh, would you like uh, adopted that aren't in the current bill? Well, <laughs> I mean, the... the there, there are a few minor contradictions in Geno's. I mean, it would it, take a long time to go through okay. it in actual mm. detail. Yeah. But, but as I say, uh, the, the bill that John Hannigan put, put in was largely based on the bill in Oregon and a mix of that and the Swiss legislation, which, again, Switzerland have had this. Switzerland is the only country in the world that allow people to travel to. And there are people that travel from Ireland to Switzerland, lots of people, mm. uh, to avail of this service. But their, their legislation is more or less bulletproof. And it hasn't changed. It hasn't. There have been no slippery slope. They haven't extended it. Uh, they they, they uh, police it very well. Uh, and, and as I say, their, their legislation would be a very good example of how to build in these safeguards. And as I say, the Oregon and, 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 and Washington bills are there as well. And it's a matter of copying them. Mm. because they work. Uh, and would you uh, support restrictions to accessing end-of-life services if they were to become available? Should there be an age restriction? Should it uh, be for people over the age of 18, for example? Well, well I think so. I think a person should need to be an adult, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Because, again, I come back to the rationality. Mm. I mean, we, we, even in things like voting and drinking and all sort of things, we already decide that a person under 18 is, can't make... Well, sorry, I, I, I don't mean to insult mm. 12-year-olds and 15-year-olds yes, and things course, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the rational decision-making capabilities of a young brain may not be mm. up to making a decision like that. Okay, uh, and what about capacity to make uh, a decision like this? And I'm thinking of mental illness and... Uh, all of uh, the different uh, types of mental illness uh, that people yeah. have. Uh, some people are, are capable of living independently, but it could be argued they're not capable of making a decision like this. Well, I mean, we, we we have the means. For instance, in, in crimes, in committing a crime, and, and this is something that, that puzzles me a little bit, that if a person decides to take somebody else's life, if somebody decides to murder someone, hmm. they're considered rational they're automatically considered by the law to understand the consequences and to be considered rational. But if, if a person considers taking their own life, even if it's to get away from a, a, a complicated illness or that sort of thing, uh, people automatically assume that they're not rational. Mm. But coming back to the mental illness side of things, it's my opinion, and, and I mean it's only my opinion, that yes, a person has to be has to have rational thought and, and rational capability. And the biggest thing is to understand the consequences of the decision they're making, that mm. this is terminal, literally terminal. Mm. Uh, and again, there are mental illnesses that don't affect uh, the, the ability to, to, to be rational, but there are some who do, yeah. that does. Mm. Uh, and the argument that's always made, and it's a very difficult one to to argue one way or the, or the other, that if a person is capable of making a decision and makes that decision and then suffers from dementia, do you know whether they would have changed their mind or not? And, and to me, and, and as I say, Swiss law is a very good example. 24 hours before the person gets the assistance, they have to go through a rationality test with a psychologist or, or a psychiatrist with a medical professional. Mm. 
to determine that they are rational and understand the consequences. And I would be very much in favour of that. And it's not just a question of making a rational decision to end your life. You would, under this legislation, have to be terminally ill uh, in order to uh, be able to make that decision legally. Well, terminally ill to get the assistance. Mm. Whereas uh, a rational person that's not ill at all mm. has the legal right to take their own life. That's there already. Mm. Since 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 since. Uh, suicide was decriminalised and this was one of the things that we had to establish when going to the High Court uh, because one of the cases we, we took the case on, on two bases one was the constitutionality of the right to life, did that give a person a right to die? But the second and, and to me more uh, I suppose justifiable is discrimination that a rational person a person without an illness has a perfect right to take their own life and, we, and the court upheld that, that they have a legal right. A moral right is a totally separate thing, but they have a legal right to take their own life. But a disabled person whose disability takes that right away from them is being discriminated against by the law. And they should be able to get assistance to do what a rational person has a perfect right to do. So we don't have to argue about a rational person having the right to take their own life. That's there already. Our rock just decided on that back in ninety in ninety three. Is this a, a good day, Tom? Um, it, it's been a, a long campaign, a campaign that you started with, Mary, yeah. and uh, one uh, that you've continued on with uh, over uh, such a, a long period of time now. Um, it, it's a, a decade uh, since you lost, yes. Mary, um, and. It certainly is historic that we have an Oireachtas committee after a dull vote looking at a change in the legislation uh, as significant as this. Uh, for you who's campaigned for this, you're not there yet uh, and it's got a long way to go, but is this one of the few good days you've had in all that time? Well, no, there have been many good days. There have been many, uh, I suppose, many bad days because this was something that I suppose the Irish people, like myself, had never really given any thought to. And it was something that an awful lot of people found abhorrent and found me uh, very strange, if that's the way to put it. And I got a lot of abuse when it came out first. Uh, but, and there have been lots of people that have come round to seeing the rationality of it. And that, yes, maybe this is something that I hadn't thought of. But now that I'm thinking about it, I can't see any problem with it, providing we legislate for it properly. Uh, so there have been certainly good days. Even the fact that, uh, well, we're, we're doing it because the Oireachtas Committee has been uh, set up, we're doing an information tour around the country. We've had two already, one in Cork, one in Kilkenny. We're in uh, Waterford tomorrow, in fact, tomorrow evening in Tracy's Hotel in Waterford at 7.30, if anybody would like to hear, hear us from there and come along. And then we're in... Uh, Galway the following Wednesday and we're taking a break then for the summer and we'll start up again uh, after the summer a uh, couple of months have passed but we're just getting people along so that we can explain to them what this is all about but part of that we're doing this in conjunction with an organisation called Doctors for MAID MAID stands for Medical Assistance in Dying and to see others coming out openly and supporting is a huge step forward because this is one of the things that people have always said, 
that doctors will never go along with this. We now have doctors on the same platform. I'm speaking in, in uh, Waterford tomorrow beside a doctor who is in uh, very and, and the doctors, there's hundreds of them, are very, and most of them are GPs because they understand. They see people who go through this every day. That's part of their work and part of the sad part of their work. But for doctors to come along and openly support this is a, is a great move forward. Okay. Tom, I have to leave it there. I've run over time, but good to talk to you. And thank you indeed for taking the time to speak to us uh, on what is a somewhat historic day in that uh, the Oireachtas uh, will go into committee to consider this legislation, which will uh, allow, uh, if uh, it is enshrined in law, people to be assisted by others to die at a time of their choice. Thanks, as I say, Tom. Tom Curran is Mary Fleming's partner. Call Michael now. 041-983-2000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Claire Murphy joins us from Trim Garda Station for this week's report. Thanks for doing that. And we're going to begin with damage to seven different vehicles that were parked on the same road. Tell us a, a little bit more about this. This was last Friday and it was on the Dublin Road in Dundalk. Yes, Michael. Guardian Dundalk are investigating criminal damage to seven vehicles which are parked in Glenwood on the Dublin Road Dundalk between 6am on Friday the 9th of June and 10am on Sunday the 11th of June 23 this year. Anybody who may have been in the area and noticed any suspicious vehicles or persons are asked to contact Dundalk Guarded Station on 042-93-88400 or on the confidential line 1800-666-111. OK, somebody was very busy in Carlingford, it would seem, on Sunday gone by where there was four separate burglaries. That's right, Michael. Guardian Carlingford are investigating four burglaries in the Much Grange Riverstown area on Sunday the... Tw- the 10th of June between the hours of 6.30pm and 8pm. These four houses were entered in a very short time frame and some of the owners had only left to go to Mass. A quantity of jewellery and cash was stolen during these burglaries. Gardaí are seeking the public's assistance in identifying a small, dark-coloured hatchback which may have been in the area at the time. Anyone who may have dash cam footage and was in the area of Much Grange, Riverstown between the hours of 6.30pm and 8pm on Saturday, gone by or asked to contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042-93-88400 or again the Garda Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111. And for anyone who may be interested, Garda and Carlingford have planned a property marking event at Hanlon's Yard, Boher, this evening between 7.30pm and 8.30pm. Details of this event is on the Loud Crime Prevention Facebook page. Okay, very good. Uh, between half seven and half eight this evening. Uh, a yeah. similar sort of story actually uh, in the Dunboyne area where somebody was broken into when they were at Mass as well. That's right, Michael. Gardaí are investigating a burglary that took place in Harristown in the Harristown Kilcoon area of Dunboyne on Sunday the 11th of June between 11am and 12 midday. The injured party in this case had again left the house to go to Mass and returned to home to find her house had been broken into and ransacked. The back door had been damaged in order to gain access. A quantity of cash, 
um, was stolen during this burglary. Anyone who may have information that could assist Gardaí in this investigation or ask to contact Ashburn Garda Station on 018010600 or again the confidential line 1800 666 There's a, an awful lot of dismay at the moment, not just dismay but an awful lot of concern as well about damage to life boys and uh, I know you want to talk to our listeners about that. That's right, Michael. People are being asked not to tamper with life boys, especially during this fine spell, as it can be vital in saving a life. Three life boys were destroyed by fire in Drogheda over the last week. Another life boy was found dumped in the North Louth area, but has been has been returned to his case in Carlingford. It cannot be stressed enough the importance of life boys when a person gets into difficulty in our waters. Please do not remove or damage them. Anyone who may have information in relation to the damage to the life boys can contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041 987 Okay, uh, let's uh, talk about some of uh, the good work done by Gardaí in Navan. Uh, this is in relation to a Garda patrol car being rammed. That's right, Michael. Guardian and Avon were on patrol at approximately 1am on Monday last, the 5th of June, when they encountered a car acting suspiciously. The car was signalled to stop. However, it was driven at the Garda patrol car and rammed it. The car was subsequently followed by Gardaí as far as Delvin and County Westmead, where it came to a halt when a stinger device was deployed. The 24-year-old male was arrested and has since been brought before the courts for several offences. Okay, uh, I'm sure some of our listeners or their children were at uh, the concert in Slane. 80,000 people there and some yeah. people left some things behind them. That's right. Anyone who attended the Harry Styles concert on Saturday and is missing any property is asked to contact Slane Garda Station on 041982402. Many items of property have been handed in to Slane Garda Station and the Garda are hoping to return the property to their owners. All right. And uh, the results uh, and uh, uh, young people socialising over the summer is something you wanted to talk about as well? Yeah, just some personal safety advice for anyone socialising really. But the leavings are coming to an end and many of our yo- for many of our young people. The following safety advice is for anyone going out socialising over the coming weeks. They're asked to drink alcohol responsibly, never drink and drive, Plan your night out and tell somebody where you are going and when you will be back. Don't let your friends or family walk home alone. There is safety in numbers. If you have to, walk in well-lit up areas and make sure you can be seen by passing traffic. Take care when carrying personal property in crowded areas and keep them in a safe location and within view. Watch out for pickpockets in crowded areas. Ensure handbags are zipped and wallets are in a safe place. Park and lock your car in secure, well-lit up areas. Do not leave valuables in your car if possible and ensure they are hidden and out of view if this is not possible. Thank you indeed. Garda Claire Murphy of Trim Garda Station. We return to the Garda Crime Desk next Tuesday. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie